I love it. If your toe was not tapping, something's wrong with you. All right, just just saying. Hey, take your uh, bulletin out, uh, your sermon notes. My name is John Irwin. I'm the associate pastor here at Agora Bible Fellowship. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. If you're visiting with the first time, uh, Pastor Scott will be back in a few weeks. He's vacationing. He's done this 41 out of like 42 years since uh, he was a wee child uh, with his uh, parents and uh, their siblings, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, we're beginning a new series called The Heart of a King. It's a middle four-part miniseries in the life of David. I'll be doing our first two messages. Uh, Bill Berry, our elder board chairman, will be message three, and Scott will be doing message four. And this morning, we've entitled our message, Five Smooth Stones, Dealing with the Giants in Your Life. Now, I'm holding up a rock here because I'm going to talk about the Valley of Elah. This rock actually came from the Valley of Elah in Israel. Now, besides the miracle of, of Goliath and David and that whole story is this miracle. I looked for quite a while. I could not find one smooth stone. Just an idea here that, uh, that and by the way, it's kind of, it's not very romantic or nostalgic when you have envisioned this story for years in your mind. And now there's like a, a, a road going right through the valley, you know. So it's not quite the way I pictured it, but uh, we'll come back to this rock here in a second. The other thing I want to talk about as we begin this series, because each of us will have a tension in our life, because when you study Old Testament narratives, you have this tension between giving this, these kind of moral, allegorical imperatives that you see in the text versus... What is the Christology of the text? Where do we see Jesus through the Scriptures? And so there's quite a bit of debate among uh, Bible teachers today about do we see Jesus in every text? And I, I was challenged by a certain man in the front row to throw away all of my notes and start with fresh eyes, Bill Berry, thank you. And, and now notice pressure's on, he's in the front row to see if I did throw away those notes. Anyway, um, and it's interesting because for the first time, I saw a thread of the gospel in this text. So I'm pretty excited right now. In fact, I'm more than excited, and I've had very little caffeine, so you're going to be grateful that I didn't because I'm going to be amped up this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would teach us today from your scriptures and that they would come alive, that they would impassion us, that that would empower us, that we wouldn't just sit there, ho-hum, yep, another day, another dime, but Lord, you would change our lives through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Bottom line, have you ever seen a giant? Let me just ask you, have you seen a giant? I'm not talking about Shaquille O'Neal. I'm saying a big dude. Now, uh, Guinness Book of World Records says the tallest man that ever lived was a guy by the name of Robert Pershing Wadlow, born on February 22, 1918 in Alton, Illinois at 6.30 a.m. That's when he's 18 years old. He's eight foot four inches tall. By the way, how would you like to be the parent of this child? Because by the time he's five years old, he's five foot four, 10, he's six five, 13, he's seven two. Every basketball coach was salivating after this kid to play basketball, but he was completely uncoordinated. In fact, very tragically, he died at a very young age. When he's 22 years old, this next picture, that was his height of eight feet 11 inches tall. He had a shoe size of 37 double A, that's 19 inches long, I think you could ski on these feet. Uh, hand span was 13 inches, arm span, 
He could clog the paint, 9595. And he weighed at his height 439 pounds. But this is what I love best about his ability. He could consume 8,000 calories a day. This is, this is my dream, let me tell you. Oh, my goodness. And he died, unfortunately, just a few months after his 22nd birthday, and his coffin was 10 feet 9 inches long. That's what the Guinness Book of World Records says was the tallest guy. I'm going to introduce you a guy that was slightly taller in our text today. Now, we said we're talking about Old Testament narrative, and 40% of the, of the Old Testament is narrative, and I'm going to try to balance out kind of the moral imperatives of, of, of the text with a Christocentric, that's a big word today, a Christocentric look at where do we see the gospel theme, the redemptive theme, theme through the scriptures. And I want to ask you a question. It's a simple one. Anytime you deal with the text, you got to ask yourself, why is this in the Bible, right? Especially if you're reading through the Bible in the year and sometimes you get bogged down in Leviticus and Numbers, you go, why is this in the Bible? This text, I am pretty sure all of you have heard it. Anybody who has ever heard the story of David and Goliath, would you raise your hands tall? Now, thus lies a problem because I think pretty sure 90, like 99% of you have heard this text. So the tension is, can I share anything that's a little uh, new or maybe you haven't heard before? And we'll take a look at that as we look at the story retold, the story retold. And we'll start with an intimidating challenge. It was hot. It was muggy. It was that day that you didn't want to be on the front lines. If you've ever been in Israel at that time, it is, is scorching heat. And in the Valley of Elah, on two sides, naturally rises these two hills. And on this side was the Philistines. And on the other side, through the Wadi River there, on the other side, this dry riverbed, was the Israelites. And for 40 days, Goliath stood up, yelled across the valley and said, Hey, you bunch of cowards, send me a man. Nobody on Israel even moved an inch. They were afraid. They were demoralized. They were fearful. They were going, oh my goodness. And privately, they were saying this to themselves, this is not going to end well. You see, anytime there is a Goliath in your life, he will demoralize you, try to defeat you, to discourage you. Write those three words down. Demoralize, defeat, and discourage. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Goliaths in your life, the modern day kind of uh, application is any seemingly impossible situation that you're facing. All right? Let's define Goliaths and giants in our, our life today as any the key word is seemingly impossible situation because we know scripturally that all things are possible, correct? We know plenty of time. My hope is in the Lord. God is my refuge and my strength. And so we see this intimidating challenge. Look at verses 3 and 4. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp this Philistine named Goliath of Gath. His height was six cubits and a span. Bottom line is the Philistines are trespassing here. This is 
Israel's land. And a point of application is that sin always trespasses in our lives. Sin is an alien intruder. It has no right to stay, and they had no right to stay. Now, I had this idyllic view I told you previously of this valley and two hills and capture the flag. And ironically, I think the high school kids were doing some version of the Valley of Elah here uh, just the other night. I saw them running around all over the campus. But the bottom line is Goliath was a big guy. If you do the math, uh, he's nine feet, nine inches tall. So he's a good foot taller than the tallest man in the Guinness Book of World Records. Spears five feet long with a tipped head weighing 15 pounds, armor of mail weighing 25 pounds. He's got a javelin. And besides all that, he's got Igor. You say, where do you see Igor in the text? Well, he's that shield bearer. I'm not sure. I think he's from Transylvania, but his name is Igor. He's, he's holding up this shield. He's a little short midget guy holding this deal up in front of him. Now, the question is, why is there one-on-one, mano y mano? It's not uncommon to have a single representative, and that way it would, it would spare human life. But the, the stakes are huge. One-on-one, Goliath whom's, and against somebody from Israel, and whoever wins, then everybody has to you know, serve the other country, and they become slaves. So it's a lot on the line. But nobody would accuse Goliath of being a humble guy, would you? He's cocky. And in fact, his name's only mentioned two times here, in verse 4 and verse 23. 27 other times, he's just called the Philistine. That's because I think Samuel, as he writes this text, um, probably kind of is a little dismayed and disgusted with him. Now, what did Goliath do? Because Giants in your life do the same, they have the same strategy that Goliath had. Look at verse 11. What did Goliath do? He dismayed and terrified Israel. So look at the text there. And the Philistines said, verse 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. King James Version says what? Yea, thus verily, they were shaking in their boots. No, it doesn't. But the bottom line is he is, they are afraid. And the logical person to go against Goliath should be who? Who's the king of Israel? Saul. And we know he's a big dude. I mean, you can see that in another passage. So he was tall. He should have been doing this. But for 40 days, 40 days, Goliath is abusing Israel and uh, and. That's an interesting time period. Think about all the 40 days. 40 days in the Bible is always significant of probation and testing. How long was Jesus' time in the wilderness? 40 days. How long were they in the ark? 40 days. And you can see that number, 40 days, over and over in the Scripture. Now, I said to identify in your life, what is the Goliath in your life, that seemingly impossible situation? In this specific test... The Goliath is a guy who is challenging someone for their faith, challenging their manhood and their courage. But I think we have all kinds of Goliaths, and I want to broaden our contest because it's a seemingly impossible situation. Now, without raising your hands and with our eyes wide open, have any of you ever faced a Goliath where there is an a seemingly impossible situation. And by the way, someone brought to me last hour, they said, this is the first time I ever looked at this text as a situation and not a person. See, I think there are things in our life that just weigh us down. You're just burdened by them. And so if you've ever had a Goliath in your life, as I just kind of pen that, just kind of you know, nod your head, just, or raise your hand. That's even better, all right? We've all faced Goliaths, right? Nod your head. If you face one, you know it can be debilitating, 
You can't, you don't know what you're going to do. And so look at some of these things that are in your life. You say, I can't, I don't, I can't overcome them. Anger, gossip, bitterness, jealousy, lust, depression, loneliness, resentment, grief, pain, procrastination, gossip, marital infidelity, anger, and anger. Some of these are sins that are debilitating you. Other things are situations that you're going to have to be called to stand for God. Now, interesting, when you preach in this valley, Chad's reminding this over and over again, we have a lot of you that work in the movie industry. And you constantly earn attention in your life, in your career, about where God fits and what you say on His behalf and when you keep your mouth shut. Because sometimes you open your mouth, you have no job, right? But all of us have those situations where if you stood for God and you opened your mouth, you said, thus saith the Lord, people are going, yeah, he's odd for God. Mm-mm-mm, not so much. Talk to the hand. I'm out. We're done. We're, we're over. And so we all face those. It reminds me of this story that was written by Richard Harvey, and he, he was a guy, a pastor for many, many years, and he writes about a, a seminal moment in his college experience where he had a choice to stand for his faith, and, and he didn't. The story is told that this was a Midwestern university, and there was a chemistry professor by the name of Dr. Lee, and Dr. Lee had this lecture that he did on the Wednesday before the, they dismissed students for, the, for Thanksgiving weekend. And he would announce it three weeks prior. He said, hey, if there's any Christians in this class, I want you to know that that your faith is worthless because God is dead. And I want to propose a challenge to you. And he put this challenge out three weeks before the break. He said, if any of you still believe in God and believe in prayer and believe in miracles, and you could see and hear the sarcasm dripping from this guy's little announcement. He said, if there are any Christians still... If you want to, we'll give a chance for your God to answer your prayer, and this is the challenge. And we reached behind him, and he took out a two-quart glass flask. And he said, I'm going to hold this flask out, and on this concrete floor, I'm going to drop the flask. And it's going to break into a thousand pieces, just like what your faith is worth. But if you believe that God answers prayer, then I'm going to let you pray and ask God to keep that flask from breaking. I'm sure none of you will ever take this challenge because you're... And he said some other things, but essentially he called them out as idiots, fools, and cowards. So that's the challenge, boys and girls. You're dismissed. Well, there was a young freshman in that class, and he'd kind of checked around. There weren't very many Christians on this campus. He found this guy, Richard Harvey, who writes this story, who is now a senior. He said, did you take the class? He said, he did. He said, did you stand up to the challenge? He goes, no, I didn't. Why didn't you stand up? Richard Harvey didn't really have a good answer. But the answer we all know, anytime you stand for your faith and it puts your job at risk or it makes you feel stupid or you're wondering if people think you're odd for God, it's hard, isn't it, to say, this is what God's done. I'm reminded, Romans says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, but how many times, and I say it to myself, how many times have I just kept my mouth shut because I didn't want to make waves I didn't want to cause a controversy. I didn't want to be odd for God. I didn't want to stand up for what I really believed. And I didn't want to admit that I was ashamed. Maybe I soft-pedaled it. I was embarrassed. I don't know enough. What if they ask me a question I can't answer? We've all been there, haven't we? And so the freshman said, well, I'd like you to pray for me because on that day when it comes, I want to stand up and I want to, I want to, I want to call that professor out. It's wrong. I get you, he's a freshman. 
It's a lecture class of 300. The day comes. It's the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. The professor ends his lecture early. He said, well, Christians, today's the day. If any of you still believe that there's a God who answers prayer, now's your chance. Do we have any Christians in here who would like to take my challenge that God will answer your puny prayers? 300 people sat in their seats except for one. And the freshman stood up. It was unbelievable. Everybody looked around like, oh, this is not going to end well. The professor, Dr. Lee, looked at me and said, oh, so you're a Christian. You think God's going to answer prayer? <laughs> How quaint. How special. Well, I'm going to drop this glass flask in just a moment, and your faith is going to shatter in a million pieces just like this is. Uh, but I do want to let you have a chance to pray. Do you have a pastor who wants to pray on your behalf? Are you ready? The little freshman said, I've been ready. Everybody around him kind of took note. They sat up in their seat. The little freshman didn't realize that Richard Harvey had stepped into the back of the room to see this. He himself, three years previously, not having the guts to stand up to this professor. And so this is what the freshman prayed, and I quote it from the book. He said, God in heaven, may your name be honored. May you do what you said you will do. Now, I want to stop there in the middle, and I'll tell you the rest of his prayer. What is the balance between faith and foolishness here? Because if I'm that guy, I'm not sure I'm going to just pray that exact way because it seems a little foolish. This seems obvious. That's glass. This is concrete. It's going to break. This is a stupid thing. This is not going to end well. He continues his, his prayer. He says, Lord in heaven, do not allow this flask to be broken. But Lord, anyway, it is your reputation that is at stake. Amen. And so the professor just shook his head, and you could see every bit of sarcasm in his eye, like, you idiot. And he held the flask out. Hang on to that point, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. Because that's exactly, friends, isn't that exactly what Goliath is doing to David? He's taunting him, bring it, and David says, God's reputation is at stake. It's his honor that's at stake. So there's an innocent question in verses 17 to 30. It's customary, as you know, in that early section that David's going to the front lines. He's not in the battle. The three older brothers are going to the battle. He's the youngest of eight kids, correct? And so it was customary for the family to provide food for their family members. So he's bringing food, and it says he brings a double portion of cheese for the commander. Maybe it's a little bribe for the boss, keep the older brothers out of the front lines, etc., etc., now, David has a job. What is his job at the time that qualifies him to take on Goliath the giant? He is a what? He is a shepherd. That's like by being a network administrator for a computer company. I mean, it's not exactly, uh, it's a technical job. Actually, caring for sheep was a very difficult job, but it wasn't a warrior's job. It wasn't, or so we think, right? It wasn't the kind of job prepared you to do this. And so he asked, what's going to happen? Uh, but before he does, look at verse 20. Before he kind of gets there, he, he finds someone to take care of his sheep. I think when God calls you on assignment, he has you in a different area sometimes. And doesn't mean you abandon that other area. You still got to take care of business before you go on to the next deal. And, and of course, David did. So uh, in verse 25, 
And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Let's summarize the three things that are going to happen for the guy who takes out Goliath. Number one, a monetary reward, great reward. Number two, Saul's going to give his daughter to him in marriage. And number three, he won't have to pay taxes because of his public service. Now, I like that last one especially. I would like to stand for God and not pay taxes. I think this is an awesome concept. Now, the problem is he sees this, David sees this as a spiritual battle. Throughout this text, you're going to see David, this is a spiritual issue, not a, a physical issue. Now, his brother, look at verse 28, he doesn't think this is such a cool idea. Oldest brother Eliab says this in verse 28. Now, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few, and you might substitute measly, puny sheep, in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And you can see little brother David going, what? What's up? You know, older brother alive, why, why, why are you so upset? And what his older brother essentially is, is maybe upset and jealous, and he verbally slams his little brother David. And he said, here's your hair to watch the battle, you little poser. Are you in the game? Are you going to fight? Just bring a little cheese for the commander? Get out of here, punk. You're 18 years old. This is a man's job. Be done with you. Now, that's a little read-in, but I think it's pretty close to the text, right? Now, are any of you surfers? Do we have any? I just, because I'm not. We got one surfer. We got, only, we got two. Do I see three? I see three. Are we going for four? All right, we got three surfers. Now, I am told that there are people who are surfers, and then there are wannabes. There are posers. These are guys who dress the part, they get out on a board, they sit on the wave, and they never take a wave. Is, do you ever see guys like that? They, they kind of, and then they tell the story about how they, they would have, should have, could have, oh, but the guy cut me out, you know, cut in on me, and blah, blah, blah. But they never really take a wave. That's what Eliab is doing today. He goes, you little poser, you're here to watch the battle. This is serious men's stuff. Don't get in our way. Get out of here. That's essentially what he's saying. So the question is, why did David do it? Is it for the girl? I don't think so. Is it for the money? I don't think so. We know why he does it, because in verse 26 and in verses 46 and 47, he does it to vindicate the reputation of the holy living God, Jehovah Jireh. He is standing for God, pure of heart. Well, we see an incredible offer, verses 31 to 40. And uh, look at verses 32 and 33. You'll see here that David volunteers. He says to Saul, let no man's heart fail. In other words, don't get a heart attack over this, Saul, uh, because your servant will go out and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a, and then the Swedish-Norwegian term, you are but a youth." right? You're a youthful guy. And he's been a man of war from his youth. He's twice your age. He's twice as strong. You're just a kid. So Saul doesn't buy in. And so the bottom line is, who should have been volunteering for this deal? Saul. So what is Saul doing? He's kind of pawning this off on him. So David has to recount his exploits in verses 34 to 37 and how he'd killed the bear and and, um, and all those things. And by the way, Psalm 11 is written after those, ex those exploits. So if you want to study that in context, read Psalm 11. It's right after he's, he's killed the bear and the lion. 
And the way it's worded here, it says when. In other words, it means it happened more than once. It wasn't a one-time occurrence. Whenever it happened, he did these things. Now, you got to ask yourself, is this 17, 18-year-old kid, is he just a little touched in the head? Like, is he serious? Why would he have done this? This is where I think it's, it's so easy to preach a text or read a text and go through it and not ask the critical question like, my question is, what was he thinking? I mean, seriously, what was he thinking? And I think that David didn't underestimate the danger. I think he could say, I could be prepared to die today. But he's not blind to those circumstances. He's just willing to see beyond those circumstances. Write that down as a principle. Don't be blind to your circumstances. Just look beyond your circumstances. That's ultimately what faith is, is looking beyond the circumstances of life. Saul was afraid. Goliath was too big to hit. David said, he's courageous. No, Goliath is too big to miss, right? Saul saw him as too big to hit. David, too big to miss. And so it's ironic in verse 37, who blesses David? Saul does, right? Look at it there. Saul blesses David in verse 37, and yet we know from chapter 16 that the Lord had already left Saul. That's why David, you know, had come in to play the harp for him. And it's going to provide a curious moment here at the end of the text that Abner and, and Saul kind of forget the fact that David's already been here serving Saul previously. So Saul's offer is what? Wear my armor, right? It's kind of a foreshadowing of being king. Remember, he's already anointed as king. It's going to be 14 years before David comes to the throne, even though he was anointed previously. And so Saul's offer to help David uh, isn't purely altruistic. If you study this at any length, you'll know that he was enriching himself as well because tradition said that if you wear the clothing of another that you were to have his very being. And so it was a calculated act on Saul's behalf that David, uh, he could take a little credit and share with David's potential victory if he didn't die. And so we see that later in chapter 18 with Jonathan that he gives uh, without thinking of anything in return when he gives his tunic to David. Now the bottom line is David doesn't take the equipment. It's not because he couldn't. He's a big boy. He could have worn it. He just was untested, it said. And it's not that he couldn't handle it, but it's just the bottom line is you can't do God's methods your way. You can't fight God's battles your way. Um, we can't meet the Goliaths in our life through someone else's strength. This is something you can't borrow from somebody else. Either you have this in your soul to say, I'm going to stand for God. And I realize here, for some of you, this is a very real deal. You've got a situation in your life that this is not going to end well. It's going to take a miracle. It's going to take God doing a miracle to save your marriage. It's going to take a miracle for your boss to ever, ever be open to you starting a Bible study in your company over the lunch hour. It's going to take a miracle for a wayward child to come back. It's going to take a miracle for you to deal with an addiction you struggled with all of your life. And so there's an impassioned exchange in verses 41 to 47. Goliath keeps moving forward, hurling insult after insult in verse 42. He curses by his gods in verse 43. And in essence, he says, you're mine, thinking your best Hulk Hogan image, you're mine, right? And Goliath is defying God when he's defying Israel. 
It's a little trash talking going on here. Well, David's not intimidated. This is what I think is amazing. Look what he says. Then David came to the Philistine in verse 45 and said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've now defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to cut off your head. So take that. Yeah. Now, I think this is pretty amazing because you've got the Philistines over here just salivating. Oh, this kid is toast. You've got the Israelites taking bets the over and under on how long he's going to last, right, over here. And yet they put their fate in his hands. And some have observed, what was Saul thinking? You've got all these veteran war heroes there at your disposal, and you take David. This is a God thing because God intervened. He's not intimidated. And pride goes before a fall. And so, look at, uh, did we put up verse 45? So David said to the Philistine, you come to me with the sword. And what does David say? I come to you in the name of the Lord. The greatest weapon in your arsenal is the name of, of God. And you say, how does that really work? The bottom line is human battles are, not, are won in spiritual places. The battle, friends, always begins in your mind. The battle begins with your choice to say, I place my faith in the living God. So he had the sling of faith and the stone of truth. And remember, the Philistines owned the iron market. In fact, there's a particular fight where there's only two swords in all of Israel. That's Saul and Jonathan. So they had all the weaponry. David had already won the battle in his mind. And so we see this impacting encounter in verses 48 to 54. Goliath may have taught him, but David triumphed. And he goes and grabs these five smooth stones from the wadi, from the riverbed. And look at verses 48 to 50 on the screen there. It says this. Um, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David... To meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and, and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead right here, and he fell on his face to the ground. This is an epic win. This is better than any boxing fight in history. The, the, the God of the universe takes a little shepherd boy with a little slingshot and in one stone he takes the guy out. Now for men, this is a testosterone building event. Like, yeah, this is awesome. You know, it's a gruesome event. I mean, this, this just knocks this guy out cold. Now, some of you would say, now wait a second. If David had so much faith, why did he have five stones, right? If God could do it with one, why did he bring five? Well, tradition says that Goliath had four brothers. We don't know, but possibly if you take out somebody, somebody else in the family is going to come after you, so he's got a little extra protection. Number two, he's not taking chances. He wasn't perfect. If he missed on the first one, he's got a chance to throw another one. Now, the question is, and it's smaller than this, how fast did this stone go? I was talking this with a, um, a physics professor one time. Uh, or maybe he fancies himself as, and I get this, and I'll show it to you if you want to see it. The guy writes out this mathematical formula for me, but the bottom line, it's at least 136 miles per hour. So to put it in context, it is faster than any fastball that Clayton Kershaw currently throws. He's around 95 to 100. 
And so if you get anything at 136 miles an hour hitting you here, you're going down. It's, it's not even close. Now, there's a curious thing that after this happens, of course, you know, David cuts off his head and they run for, the Philistines run for the hills. But this is where some critics of the Bible go, now see, this is where the Bible is all messed up. Because if you look carefully at the end of chapter 17, Saul saw David go out against the Philistines and he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this guy? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. Well, inquire who this son of the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. Now, if you're thinking critically, you know that he's been where in chapter 16? Where had David previously been besides taking care of sheep? Help me here. He had periodically been called to the court, right? Because Saul has this kind of demon spirit in him or evil spirit. And David plays the harp. And one time Saul tried to pin him with a spear. And so, uh, how do we answer that? And, and I, I have a couple suggestions. Um, number one, Abner might not have been around uh, the court, so he may not have ever met David. Number two, it could have been quite some time since David had actually served in the court, and he was younger then. Now he's grown older. Maybe he has a little beard. Uh, maybe he didn't recognize him. Uh, David plays the harp in the shadows, and Saul's in his disturbed state, doesn't care who it is, just get the job done. And Maybe Saul has slipped so bad, his mental faculties, the, the possession, the demonic influence, evil spirit is so great that his reasoning is obscured. We, we don't know. So the summary we stated is this. There are some principles we can take from this text as we wrap up today about how we can overcome the giants in our lives, those things that paralyze you with fear, those things that keep you from standing up for God those impossible situations that you think can't be conquered, those times in life when you feel like giving up, those areas in your life where you're causing yourself to doubt. So how do we bring these giants to their knees? Number one, accept the inevitable challenge. There is going to be a challenge to your faith. If you're a Christian who stands for God, your faith will be challenged. We see that in our court system in certain Supreme Court decisions that have been made recently. We've seen it in the moral decay of our, of our structure and our culture. There will be challenges. But David says in verse 32, let not a man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight. So be willing to stand up. Stand up for what you believe. Make a decision and get involved. Battles are a part of the Christian life. We kind of go through life thinking, oh, being a Christian, I'm on easy street. No. I think some of the toughest times in my life has been when I've made a decision to do something and then everything just falls apart after that. We had a bunch of men go to Men's Street. I guarantee you they had a tough week this week. They had a tough week because they made a decision on a mountaintop that will be tested in the valley. Every time you send your kids off to Hume Lake, the next week, craziness happens at home when those kids get back. They make decisions to honor God and then everything falls apart. Um, anytime I preach, anytime I do a couple's retreat, it's an interesting deal because my wife and I have interesting conversations. She's in the front row. She's smiling. You know, all is well in the Irwin family. But I must say that there are times where I'm just a little bit on edge. I'm just admitting that up front. I'm not an easy person to live with. It's like a football game for me all week long. I'm preparing. I'm psyching up. And then Saturday comes. 
So part of my strategy this year before preaching is to have people at my house so that I could not do or say something that I would regret later and then feel badly and then I couldn't preach with conviction because I'm feeling bad because I hurt my wife's feelings. And so I had people over the house. They, they covered us for like six hours. We played Mexican train and I actually lose twice. It was horrible. But, uh, but my wife and I are good. So this is good. But there is a battle and you've got to take that battle seriously. Saul didn't. He didn't take David seriously. Who are you and what have you done in the past? Goliath didn't take David seriously. You're just a kid. I'm going to give you a beat down. So accept the challenge. Now, when you're in a battle, I noticed in this text, five things are going to happen. Just count on it. If you're going to be in the battle, these five things will happen. And I won't read the verses. Just look at them together. Number one, you're going to be misunderstood. Verse 28. Number two, your motives will be questioned. Goliath did that with David. Three, you'll not be taken seriously. Saul didn't take him seriously. David didn't take him, or uh, uh, Goliath didn't take him seriously. Number four, you're going to have to prove yourself. You're going to have to prove yourself to others. Remember David's monologue? He had to talk about the bear and the lion and all that. And then lastly, you're going to be ridiculed and you're going to be challenged. Look at what Goliath did. So look at those five. You'll be misunderstood. Your motives will be questioned. You won't be taken seriously. You'll have to prove yourself, and you'll be ridiculed, and you'll be challenged. Number two, believe that your deliverer and the battle is his, that God is your deliverer. Believe that. David said it, verse 37, the Lord will deliver me, verse 47, for the battle is the Lord. God is on your side. Remember Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you had to memorize any passage of Scripture when you're discouraged about who God is and what he can do, Memorize that section in Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And let me just tell you, some of you are suffering physically today. I get it. Some of you have been diagnosed with illnesses that you're not necessarily going to recover from. And this, you may be living the last days of your existence. We've got a guy in our church that no one even knows. He's going in for surgery tomorrow for prostate cancer. He's kind of a low-key guy. We prayed with him this morning. Servant of the Lord here. And by the way, I asked him because I said, you're so low-key, you're not telling anybody. And he gave me permission. Gary Miller's going in for surgery tomorrow. And so the Lord is your deliverer. But the interesting thing, and this is the part that I, I never had caught in the text before this week, is that David is a type of Christ in this text. David is a type of Christ in this text. And, and you see this. Let me give you the Christological implication. Remember I said we keep the tension between these moral imperatives and the Goliaths in your life to where is Christ and redemption woven through the scripture. Check this out. David is an ancestor of Jesus. Jesus is called the son of David, comparison number one. Number two, God chose and delighted in David to deliver Israel. God the Father chose and delighted in Jesus to deliver us. David received the Spirit to do a mighty task for Israel. The Spirit of God, remember at Jesus' baptism, descends on Jesus at his baptism. His ministry beginning. Samuel anointed David to be king. John the, Bapti uh, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus to be our Savior. Now, at this point, I'm going to give you like five more. And those of you who are writing frantically, you're going, you're going too fast. It's in the notes. It's on the website. They'll be up there by 6 o'clock tonight. Just listen. Next, 
David slew Goliath, the intimidator. Jesus slew Satan, the accuser. Very similar, Satan's accusation and Goliath's taunts. Very similar. David, this is, this is incredible. David overcame Goliath with a weapon Goliath scorned. A little slingshot and five rocks. Jesus overcame Satan with a weapon that Satan scorned. What was it? He thought he won because Christ died on the cross. Death on a cross was that scorned weapon. Only Satan would have known, huh? David won victory for all of Israel regardless of their faith. And just a point here. Is anybody else standing up for the living God at this point? Saul certainly not. David's brothers aren't. Nobody in the army is. No prophets around. No, nobody is standing for God except for one 17 or 18-year-old ruddy-faced, good-looking guy in a tunic called David. Little shepherd boy who has been anointed as king, and that could have gone to his head. And think about this. He's anointed king in chapter 16. How many years does he wait before that happens? 14 years. 14 years he's waiting for God to do what he promised him to do. And just a sidebar. Anytime God gives you a promise, it's not necessarily going to happen the same day, the next day, or the next month. It's 14 years in David's case. Abraham gets a, a promise. It takes a long time. He's 100 years old before he has the kid. On and on and on. If God makes a promise, he will provide. Write it down. If God makes the promise, he's going to provide. And so those are the context of this. And nowhere in any of Israel are they standing for God. So David wins the victory regardless of the Israelites' faith. faith. How about for us? Jesus wins the victory for us, according to Romans 5, 8, while we're still sinners. We didn't have any great faith. He died for us while we're still sinners, it says. And then ultimately, his victory is good news for Israel. Jesus is good news. His victory is good news for us as the church. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus, David, type of Christ. Number three, choose your weapons carefully. Saul clothed him with his armor in verse 38. David says, I can't go on with these. I've not tested them. Fight God's battles, God's way. Fight God's battles, God's way. What is God's way of fighting battles? It tells you in Ephesians 6. For our, our battle isn't with what? Flesh and blood, but it's, it's a battle fought in the heavenlies. And if you don't think spiritual warfare is happening all around you, you're just deceived. It's a real battle. It's a real battle. And if you think you can go along with it, yeah, I got this, God. I don't think so. Choose your weapons carefully. Number four, depend on God, not your own efforts for the victory. Depend on God. You say, but I'm weak. I screw up. I'm so embarrassed. I make the same mistakes. I'm such a failure. Write this one down. Through the window of your weakness, he shines through with his strength. Through the window of your weakness, he'll shine through you with his strength. This is the good news of the gospel. It's really not all about you. hate to break it to you. It's all about him. And in fact, when you're weak, he is strong, right? Thank you. We have one Baptist in the back row there. Awesome. It's not about you. It's about him. And the difference in victory is the one of focus. Because here's, the, fo here's the, the startling idea to me this week. I face Goliaths on a regular basis, and somehow I think that I can take them on 
myself? Uh-uh, I can't. I can't. I'm incapable. Only Jesus can help me win the battles that are seemingly impossible. And ultimately, God's honor is at stake here. So when you open your mouth for him, and it's an evangelistic kind of deal, it's his reputation at stake. There are some of you who are evangelists in this group, and it's awesome because on your prayer journals, you write about who you're sharing Christ with and who we should be praying for. And the first hour is a guy named Matt McCormick. The guy is a walking evangelist. If you are a non-Christian, atheist, or agnostic, I'm telling you, you do not want to be on a plane with him that goes any distance, like three or four hours, because he'll sit on the aisle and you won't get out. I'm just telling you. Not in an obnoxious way. He just is passionate about sharing what God's done in him. Now, maybe you're like that. What I asked myself this week is, how come I'm not? How come so many times I'm not? I shut my trap. I don't open my mouth. I talk about sports, but I don't talk about Jesus. I'm more concerned about my fantasy football team in a few months than about the future of somebody's salvation. I'm not doing the Debbie Downer Jesus juke here. I'm just saying there are times that I wonder who I'm really depending on. Maybe you do too. Because we can talk it, but we don't always live it. The difference is one of focus. And then lastly, expect opposition from within and without. Expect opposition from within and without. We saw it internally, right, through his brother, his family. And then we see it externally from Goliath, who kind of called him out. One final takeaway today, and then I'm going to have you pray. We see one giant, one man, David. But in the real spiritual world that we live in, there'll be a bunch of giants. This, you don't just defeat a giant once. They come at you again and again. Now, I'm going to share your, the old school kind of, you know, video game era that I lived in. Pac-Man, Space Invaders, and Tetris. Now, you go, what does that do? Because they never stopped. You think you're winning, and then the Tetris thing just collapses on you. The Pac-Man, they destroy your Space Invaders. They just keep coming. So I called Josh. And by the way, Josh, if you're listening to this, I know you're not here, and you called me out last week. I'm just going to call it what it is. <laughs> Couldn't imitate me. Gray hair. Talk about family. Cry, cry. I didn't cry once to stay. Ah, that's for you, Josh. Anyway, um, <laughs> if you have no idea what I'm talking about, just ask someone, because I am an emotional beanbag. I admit it. So, but I did call Josh. I said, so what's the modern day, like, video game giants that they just never stop? My little moment of irrelevance here. Nazi zombies, he told me, and Call of Duty. I've never played those games. I have no idea what that means. But the bottom line is there are video games that they never stop fighting you in the same way in the spiritual life. The enemy never stops. He doesn't go to sleep. He constantly is going to come at you. Dr. Lee held the flask above the entire audience. Now, remember, 300 people in this chemistry class. The little freshman prayed as he, I told you, God's honor's at stake. Dr. Lee looked at him one last time. Are you sure you want to do this? He just nodded his head in silence. He dropped the flask. Now put chariots of fire in your mind. Go in slow motion. <laughs> See it tumbling down. 
Everybody sits up in their seats looking to see as it's going to hit the floor. And unbelievably, Richard Harvey writes that the flask somehow falls on the professor's foot and not the concrete and rolls harmlessly to its side unbroken. 300 students stand up and give an applause and cheer while the freshman sits down and collapses in complete exhaustion because he trusted God with what seemed to be foolish or faith, faith or foolishness. Richard Harvey writes sadly in his book that as he stood there as a senior watching this experience, it shaped his entire pastoral ministry. He lamented the fact that earlier in his, in his life that he was afraid and cowardly and fearful. But he made a decision that day that ever, if he had the chance, he would choose to stand for God, not cower in fear. Chad's going to play for us as I bring us to conclusion. And today I realize you've heard that story before. You've, you've heard about the Goliaths in your life. Or maybe you've not thought about it. But I want to challenge you. Would you bow your heads and you close your eyes? Today, maybe there are some men and women here that are saying, it's time for me to stand up. It's time for you to stand up and quit playing this game I call being a Christian. You're tired of playing it safe. You want to make your life count. And I am begging you as one of your pastors... And I'm asking you and I'm pleading with you, what do you got to lose? It's time to be counted with the company of the committed. I have a few dreams in my life. I've told you previously I have a dream that my kids would love Jesus. My grandkids would love Jesus. My great-grandkids would love Jesus. That's one of my dreams. But here's another dream in my life. I don't want to play it safe. I don't want to be mediocre. I don't want to just be that pastor who prays with you and loves on you and cries with you and say it's going to be okay. What I want to be is a warrior who when I am called to step it up, that would stand there and take on the Goliaths in life. And I want to know who's going to join me. Who's going to join us and say, if God calls, if he rings a bell, I'm going. You don't have to stand up. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to kneel. But you do need to make a decision to accept the inevitable challenge, to believe that God's in charge, to choose your weapons carefully, to decide who is it that you put your strength in, and then expect opposition. And so if you're that man or woman, would you look at me? Just let's look. Just, you want to be that guy. You want to be that woman. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, 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 yes. I see that hand. All over this audience, we got Davids who have a heart of the king, that Jesus is calling you to stand up in spite of what culture says, in spite of what some in our government say, in spite of what the world says, you'll be like Joshua. But as for me and my house, I'm going to stand for God. Lord, I pray that would be true. But Lord, I know that there are some in our audience today that 
there's a Goliath so big, a monkey so big on their shoulder right now, they can hardly breathe. Because this situation seems impossible. And they've got to trust you as they stand up against it. If you've got that situation and there's something that looms in front of you that seems so terrible, so awesome, so hard, so unbelievable that you're not sure you can handle it, and you, you can't, God can, would you look at me? I don't even know what that thing is. But you say, that's my giant. I got to let go of that. I got to defeat that Goliath. You've got to defeat that Goliath. Yep. Anybody else? I got one. You got one. I got one. Anybody else? Yep. Yep. Look at me so I can see you. Okay. 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 Yep. We're, you're not, we're not alone. And so, Lord, whether we got to stand up or we got to release something or whether we got to realize that that Goliath can't take us down, that you give us that power, Lord, we know how the story ends. And so today we lift it up to you. We release it to you. And just like David had five smooth stones, we stand firm for you today. You're ours. We're yours. In Jesus' name, amen. That is so awesome that no matter what Goliath you are facing in your life, we've got an angel army standing by our side. You've already won. The victory is won. Amen? Do you have a pulse? Amen? Amen. Go in God's peace. Now, God, may you deliver us. The Savior of the world, may you give us the strength and courage of a David and the heart of a king to do ministry for you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.